From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. All of us, I'm afraid, have become statisticians thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're looking for any sign that a miracle is about to occur and that this is going to disappear, and that usually involves citing statistics, something that the president is in the habit of doing. And I think the result of all of this is is to leave us hopelessly confused over who's right and who's wrong. And as we know, statistics can be manipulated to support any point of view you want. So I thought that we would uh, bring in uh, two people whose specialty is calling bullshit. And in fact, they designed the famous course at the UW named uh, Calling Bullshit, the Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. They are Jevin West and Carl Bergstrom. And uh, I have to congratulate them because they finally turned this into a book titled Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. So congratulations. Did you, do, you, do you think the, uh, the book was able to make this interesting uh, as opposed to just a, a, a blur of numbers? I think absolutely, because there is so much bullshit out there, and we're very interested in it, and we're attuned to the sorts of ways that people try to mislead us. And so there's a ton of fun stories that you can tell around this. So we did our very best to bring those stories out. I guess the you know the proof is in the pudding, but uh, but it is anything but a statistics textbook. It is a treatise on the way that our world is saturated with BS. Okay, Carl, thank you for that. Uh, I'm glad you're not going to make things worse. But uh, are you prepared to answer my questions on the way coronavirus statistics are being handled? Have you been steeped in that for uh, the last, what, five months? About 80 hours a week, yeah. I've been doing a lot of public comms around that, and uh, it keeps me busy. Good. And I I just want to make it clear to listeners that uh, don't take my questions as a point of view. I am trying to reflect all the questions I've been getting about this since the beginning. So my first question is, can you objectively say that this is a disease as special as the news coverage seems to imply, that it is much worse than the flu? Because we've never covered a flu epidemic this way, as far as I can tell. It's absolutely worse than a flu. The flu that it's not worse than is the 1918 uh, flu pandemic uh, 102 years ago. That one was really bad. Mm. Um, but it's worse than any flu since by by a huge, huge margin. It's infecting large numbers of people and it is killing vastly larger fractions of the and so and so how, as a statistician how do you establish that then what what numbers do you look at to be able to say that so what we try to do is compute uh, what you call the infection fatality rate and uh, and the case fatality rate the case fatality rate is relatively easy to compute that is the the fraction of people that are diagnosed with the disease mm-hmm. uh, who end up dying the the thing that you really want to know, though, is the infection fatality rate. You want to know if everybody who gets the disease, uh, whether they're diagnosed by a test or not, whether they have severe symptoms or not, what's their chance of dying? And that one takes a lot of statistical methodology um, to try to figure out exactly what that number is. People come at it different ways. They try to estimate what fraction of the cases are we catching. You go and you look at, uh, at what we call serotype data to see who, what fraction of the population is showing antibodies for the disease and things like that. And what it seems to be with this particular disease is that order of magnitude, it's about, you know, 10 times or or maybe a bit more uh, dangerous at all ages. 10 times more flu. dangerous. Yeah, than the regular flu or, um, across the board. Okay, well, that's definitely significant. I think we'd agree with that. 
In terms of the way the president has communicated the statistical information to the public, uh, how would either of you evaluate that? Um, The president has not done a good job of providing the public with honest, accurate information about uh, about the coronavirus using statistics or any other form of communication. Yeah, I would add, I mean, if you haven't seen the Jonathan Swan interview that Axios put on where I mean, it was actually a perfect advertisement for our book. I hate to say it um, that. In that interview, um, Trump, and, and he's not the only one that does these things, but pulls out graphs to make an argument. You could see pretty quickly that um, there, was a, there was an argument trying to be made about those graphs shown um, that uh, was more probably more manipulative and not correct. Um, and that happens all the time with data and stats and figures, and that's exactly what we talk about in the book. And if we were writing a version two, that would probably probably get its way in there, although we like to avoid uh, politics as much as we can. Well, then well, one little example, Dave. Just go ahead. The, give me. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you. Know, you. He, uh, President Trump repeatedly has called for us to slow down testing because more testing means more cases. Yeah. And uh, this is, you know, this is this is a perfect example of something that we talk about in in the book, which is called Goodert's Law. And Goodert's Law says that when a target when a when a measure becomes a target, it loses its efficacy as a measure. So the idea is that if you're trying to minimize the number of positive test results, um, if you actually target that, you know, if you try to do that by not, uh, by not testing, it, right. it loses its efficacy as a, of a measure of how many cases you have. And it does something worse than that as well, right? It undermines everybody's health by taking away the tests that we all should have had right now. We're very lucky here in Seattle that we can still get a test within 48 hours. But in most of the country, you're waiting a week or longer to get your test results. Right. But I mean, he is right in a way in that if you compare, let's say you compare America to country, which does a lot of testing, to country X, which is doing no testing. Well, since country X does no testing, they're not finding out who's died of what. And so they can say, well, we have no deaths from coronavirus because they're they're basing it on a lack of information. I think the point he's trying to he's not saying that more testing gets more people sick, but it does detect more illness than no testing would. Isn't that obvious? Well, I, I mean, that, that is right. But this is good or it's law, right? It's, yeah. it's if, you start, if you start handling this as a public relations crisis and you're trying to make the numbers look good, yeah. then you make the public health crisis worse. Well, couldn't that have been solved by doing, by, by doing something akin to political polling where you take a statistically significant sample of people and you just give them all the test? Without them coming forward, you know, uh, presenting symptoms, you just go in the general population, you give them all a test, and that would give you a measure, a, a snapshot in time of how many people actually have the infection, right? This would be a very useful thing to do, actually, if we had enough tests to go around. And in places, there are things pretty close to this being done, particularly using uh, antibody tests to see who has already had it. Um, you know, right now, we don't have enough with, with such a bad limitation on the number of tests we have for people who desperately need them. I'm not in a hurry to, you know, take a thousand or ten thousand tests away from those people and just test people at random whether they need them or not. Right. Well, I'm not saying it's a wise thing to do in terms of uh, depriving people of tests, and yet public relations is an important part of this because people who don't believe that it's serious endanger us all because they they have turned the uh, the whole mask thing into a political issue where some people are actively not masking up because they were told to. 
Right. I mean, public relations is extremely important. Um, it's just that this is more than a public relations crisis. And the way you go about handling public relations in a pandemic is something that's actually been uh, you know, studied and thought about enormously. The CDC has a field manual for dealing with infectious disease pandemics mm-hmm. that has a whole chapter on how you do this. And the, the, you know, the principles are things like be honest mm-hmm. with people. Don't try to deceive people. Don't minimize things. Also, don't tell people things that they're worse than they are to try to manipulate their behavior. Um, stick to the science. Put a scientist up there instead of a politician. Um, be consistent. So these are all messages that, uh, you know, that haven't really been taken up with the communications that have been coming out of the White yeah. House. And so one of the things that I've been very concerned about is that the White House has done a lot to undermine trust in uh, its communications and in the public health establishment more generally. So you feel the White House has been actively trying to minimize the significance of this disease? Absolutely. I mean, you have, uh, you know, from early on saying there's 15 cases, it's going to be going down soon, um, saying it's going to magically disappear in April. Uh, Over and over and over, we have communications from the White House suggesting that this is not going to be a serious issue. Um, The way that that Nancy Messier was sidelined from the CDC, the interference with the CDC, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I would agree, too, that they tried to minimize it, and I understand why. At the same time, were there also people who are trying to exaggerate? In other words, who's, who feel it's justified to scare people if it's for the public good? There are a small number of people who do that, and, uh, but I don't think that they have the same sort of um, you know, political leverage or organization. I think this is more mm-hmm. sort of the decision of, say, individual uh, you know, media personalities or bloggers mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Uh, we really try to discourage behaving that way uh, because it does undermine public trust. But, but I mean, you know, people do make these decisions. We saw some conspiracy theories very early on here in Seattle that were fascinating, um, you know, where you had people writing about, uh, uh, you know, online and things like that, including, you know, like well-known doctors about how like Seattle was a, was a you know, disaster zone because of the, the, the pandemic, you know, way back in March. Of course, living here in Seattle, we knew that it wasn't. We knew yeah. this was all false, but they were trying to scare people around the country into taking this more seriously. And I really aggressively attacked that online and said, look, this is bullshit. Um, you know, I'm here in Seattle. I've talked to a bunch of doctors today. They're, you know, this is a this is a bullshit scare story. So where do people go then for statistics that accurately reflect what's going on? It's really damn hard right now, Dave, because I would have said until six months ago, the CDC, and there's been so much tampering politically with the CDC that we can't uh-huh. really trust what they're doing. Um, what I've been recommending to people is to turn to professional reporters, um, you know, people like Helen Branswell, who know how to get this information from the people that know what's going on. Jevin, jump in here. Well, you're talking to the one of the world experts on this. I don't know if you know this, Dave, but not only has Carl spent a lot of time thinking about the way information and misinformation moves through society and biology like myself, he spent half his career thinking about infectious disease. So those two <laughs> things came together. And I'm not going to over-talk <laughs> one of the experts. That's one thing what we teach in the book is we, we do have experts out there. There is such thing as truth. So I'm just going to shut up right here and then talk about <laughs> he, things. Dave, he's just scared I'm going to call bullshit. That's actually <laughs> Well, what aspect of it are you studying? So I'm, I'm actually studying at the population level uh, rumors themselves. So how rumors yeah. spread rather than the infectious disease itself. So we use a lot of the same methods. We use a lot of the same models. We use a lot of the same techniques for tracking 
not necessarily COVID-19 as it spreads through the population, but how conspiracy theories um, move through the population. So what we have in our new Center for an Informed Public that Carl's a part of and several of our colleagues at the University of Washington, we are tracking to a very large scale hundreds of millions of tweets, actually it's over, it's in the billions now since January 24th of this year, looking at what uh, conspiracy theories are exploding, how they go away, how certain individuals, a lot of times obscure individuals before the pandemic become all of a sudden influential voices. Well, tell me, about, tell me about that, because for a lot of people who are on Twitter, that's their dream is to become the guy who plants the rumor, uh, true or not, just to just to see what will happen. Dave, you know more about misinformation studies than most people because there are there are people out there like there are professionals out there. That, that, well, professionals and that they pretty much make money on this in terms of their influence, but they wait for crisis events and then they start throwing rumors fast because there's a lot of uncertainty during the early parts of a crisis, and all of a sudden they get amplified quickly on social media platforms from Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, what what you name the social media platform. And then they can use that influence to make money because influencers today make money on social media. So that's that's what I was going to get. So that's the motivation then. The yep. more you get retweeted, the more money you make? Well, not necessarily retweeted on Twitter, but what happens is like let's say you there's a lot of YouTube influencers and they yeah. can use these multiple they can use multiple platforms. So they might amplify their influence on social media, but then on YouTube and, and also, you know, you can get paid. So they use Twitter well. then to funnel people to their YouTube platform, which which is monetized. Yeah, that's one that's one yeah. way, which is monetized. And you can get you get money because of those advertisements that sit next to your video that's playing. Yeah. I'm okay. doing it wrong, Jevin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just dealing in those boring statistics, Carl. If you would tweet something outrageous once in a while and then lead people to a crazy over the top video where you read spreadsheets naked or something, you wouldn't have to <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> you wouldn't have to mess with this silly you dub job. Um, well, maybe not. That's, that's true. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So, so that that answers the motivation for people spreading this nonsense. So, my next question is: um, Is it Russia? So, um, you know, do all do all roads point to Russia here, or are we just talking about digital vandalism? Well, certainly, Russia is a, a bad state actor, and that's been validated in the research community, the government community, the intelligence community. They're not the only bad state actor out there. Um, doing this kind of stuff, even just the news today about more discussions about the role they played in 2016 and the role it looks like they're playing in 2020. But there are way more purveyors of misinformation out there than just Russia. I mean, there's people, the propagandists, of course, but there's also the opportunists, like we just talked about, that are just there to make money. Just create enough headlines. Um, some of them will stick, some of them won't. But if you get enough people to click on them, you can make money on advertisement. Right. So we just have these platforms that it's so easy just to spew pollution. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, because sometimes I'll click on those just to see where it's heading. It does not change my behavior in the least. So if if most people look at these things, click on them, they get a giggle out of it, or they tisk tisk tisk, and they go on, is it harmful? Sure. And that's actually something that the research community is looking at. And there's been some results that say this is having, you know, this you know, unconscious effect on our behavior. And some are saying, well, it's not as bad as we think. I mean, most people are reasonable, reasonably smart, and, and they can tell that it's mostly entertainment and ridiculous. But that remains to be seen. And, and I, I tend to be a little bit more concerned because there's so much of it out there that it drowns out the good voices. Um, and the way that these, these algorithms and these platforms work 
they figure out what you like and then pretty soon all that's almost the majority of what you're getting are these yeah. conspiracy theory videos. Is it possible then for the platforms themselves to control this? Would the technology be available to do that? Because you, you you apparently have figured out a way to follow rumors. So could you use could Google, for example, use your tools to instantly uh, pick up these signals that a, a, a completely false rumor is starting to spread and, you know, use your own uh, digital vaccine to prevent it from getting too far? So the answer is yes and no. So, yes, they do have the ability. Their tools are better than ours. And if we actually are having conversations, let me give you an example. So we've been collecting data on Google search engine on terms like coronavirus or corona space virus all over the country in different communities. And what we have found is that in really small communities, let's say a small town in Texas, one of the first things you'll see if you search, let's say, pandemic would be these some of these conspiracy theory videos around uh, the spread of coronavirus and vaccines more generally. Um, and we then told, this was just two days ago, we told Google, we said, hey, there's you're showing this these things on your top ad. And they go, whoops. And it got mm-hmm. fixed within hours. So we can work together. Wait, with there's them, a there's a person at Google you can call to complain? Holy cow. Can I have his number? That's <laughs> is it, it who is it? Is it Actually, uh, I, this contacts someone that works in their research center and they don't have a, an open door to everyone in yeah. the world, but they do have ways to report these things on Google. Well, that, at least that's reassuring. Um, let me ask you something else. The, the University of Washington modeling on this, and I know they're not the only ones that do it, but the modeling was, you know, the big news in the beginning. Did you guys go back and, and evaluate whether the modeling was, in fact, accurate? Are you talking about the coronavirus? Yeah. Oh, that's IHME. So I, so I'm not associated with with uh, IHME at the University of Washington. So I know that's um, why I'm asking you because you can give us an objective evaluation. Well, I, I've been quite critical of IHME. Um, IHME used a set of uh, modeling assumptions early on that uh, that I think were not good choices, and I think that you know their initial predictions were good at certain things and quite bad at others. So what they were good at, they were trying to predict hospital capacities and they were trying to predict the peak of the epidemic, and they did a pretty good job of predicting the peak of the first wave. They in in doing that, they baked in these assumptions that the virus was going to go away the same way that it did in Wuhan. Uh-huh. Um, and that obviously was completely wrong. So their early projections would have had it that, uh, you know, the virus would be gone in the United States by now because they assumed that here in the U.S. we were going to be successful in implementing the same kind of lockdown measures. I was critical of that from the start, and, you know, uh, unfortunately I was right on that. Yeah, and because they planted the idea. When I saw that peak, I thought, well, once we get over this, once we get over the hump, literally, we're fine. And then it turned out absolutely not. I agree, and uh, I think that you know they. I was you know I was critical of this from the day they released it. I think they did a poor job with the messaging there. They had to go back and uh, and you know modify the model to account for for the changes that we're seeing. And uh, uh, the know. funny thing is, though, they were accused of exaggerating the threat. And what you're saying is, it's exactly the opposite. Well, it's complicated as anything is, right? So they they overestimated the uh, the the need for hospital capacity. Yeah. Um, which is, in my opinion, fine. I'd much rather have them do that than underestimate it. But they baked in these assumptions that uh, that and and then made very compelling-looking pictures uh, to you know graphs to suggest that this thing was going to go away by midsummer. And I think you know, unfortunately, that got a little bit too much uh, attention from 
elements of the, the White House and so forth that uh, that maybe you know didn't really know how to interpret those models. Okay, so l- let's let's just talk some lessons learned then going forward. So we're going to be dealing with this for for a while. I think most people have, except in certain locations where it's still, I guess, a political cause. Uh, I know I have. I've gotten used to wearing the mask. I don't feel uh, self-conscious about it anymore. At first, I, I will tell you, at first I thought it, it, it did. It seemed, it seemed silly. But uh, I was persuaded by the fact that in places that wore them, you, you actually saw a statistical effect within a couple of weeks, which I thought was amazing. I said, well, wow, if this is the way we can open up again, let's, let's go ahead uh, and do it. So uh, other lessons that we've learned from this. I think we've learned the difference between indoor and outdoor uh, transmission. We've learned that uh, outdoor transmission seems to be, you know, remarkably infrequent. And so I think that people are wearing masks and, uh, you know, being reasonable, you can interact outdoors with reasonable safety. At the same time, we've learned that, boy, you know, putting a bunch of people in a call center is a terrible idea. Um, and having them, you know, talking yeah. all day in, in a closed environment with, with uh, recirculated air. Another thing we, you know, early on with this disease, we thought that it would be transmitted um, a lot by what we call fomites, which is just a fancy word for little bits of spit and mucus and things like that that people leave on surfaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you'd, you know, people would be getting it from some something somebody had coughed on the table at Starbucks and you get it that way. Now, it can be transmitted that way, but it seems to be a very minor portion of the transmission. And almost all the transmission turns out to be through respiratory droplets and aerosols that are that are in the air. So that was another big change that sort of changes how we think. And this is why the masks turned out to be so effective and more effective than than people expected so there are a bunch of lessons like that 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 uh that we've picked up as we went along and you know one of the things we're going to have to figure out now that is uh what's the role of kids in um, mm-hmm. in transmitting the disease because uh there's a big active debate about this about whether um you know kids don't have as severe of symptoms uh so the question is are they less likely to get the disease and critically are they less likely to spread it we don't really know because we shut down the schools before it really took off across the U.S., we're about to do a massive experiment at a nationwide scale um, that is going to give us that answer pretty soon. But now, would you have any advice for people who are trying to figure out what to do about schools? It's really, really hard. I'm very anxious about um, reopening the schools, but the costs of not doing so are also very high. Uh, I'm not sure how to balance those two things. Do you think that closing down the economy was the only alternative open to us here? I think that... It was a good bet at the time if we really thought that we could make all of this go away by six weeks of a strong quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out not to work. It worked in large parts of the world. It didn't work here. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, uh, we could have found these more nuanced intermediate positions that would have, um, you know, life kind of like we have it now, right? Where we've got uh, limited but less restricted during the economic activity than during the full lockdown. The problem was twofold. One, we didn't really know what things worked and what didn't at the time. We had to sort of, you know, try to put the brakes on and and take some time to figure out, okay, what's going on? How bad is this going to be? Are we going to overrun every hospital in America um, and figure that out? So, you know, I think if we, if we knew what we knew now, we could have taken a a more nuanced approach. But the problem is early in a pandemic, you never know what yeah. you know late in a pandemic. And finally, for the news media, uh, I looked it up. And I mean, the, the death toll in uh, in this country because of COVID has uh, certainly been been sobering. 
But I look at uh, cardiovascular disease. This has been ongoing for years. Right now, we have something like 2,353 deaths per day from cardiovascular disease, which is worse than what uh, COVID is doing right now, and way worse than the flu gets zero coverage, right? And, and a lot of this is also preventable through changes in lifestyle, which are more than wearing a mask, but, you know, are, are not unachievable changes. And yet we ignore it because COVID-19 is novel. So I have to ask you, does that make sense? I think that we might do well to focus a little bit more on some of these, uh, you know, preventable, uh, you know, sort of long-term chronic conditions. Um, but I think that the focus on COVID does make a lot of sense because what you're not seeing is the counterfactual where everybody says, oh, screw it, let's completely ignore COVID. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're seeing 150,000 deaths in the United States, which is dreadful. But what you're not seeing is what would have happened if people just kept on living like it was 1999. Yeah. That would look a heck of a lot worse than, uh, than cardiovascular on the short term. But the bottom line is also these things are serious, right? You know, cancer deaths, cardiovascular deaths. Uh, worldwide TB deaths, all of these things are dreadful. They have an enormous toll. And, you know, we have to take seriously if you, I mean, yes, those are bad, but if you add in one more thing that's also that bad, you want to take that very, very seriously um, and and do what you can about it. Jevin, take the last word here. Well, I'll just continue with that thought. I think like Carl said, um, you're looking at 150,000 deaths under these controlled conditions, and it could be much worse. But what it does do is it brings up the conversation that you just brought up, that there's all these deaths to cardiovascular disease. And with this focus on public health, maybe this is the opportunity that we start investing in it more in preventative measures and research around it. And hopefully something like that comes out of this whole COVID mess. Jevin West and Carl Bergstrom, their new book is called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. You read this book and you will be smart enough to stop conversations (laughs) everywhere you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no more statistics, please. Thank you, guys. Uh, really good to talk with you again. Likewise, Dave. It's always fun. Thanks, Dave. Always fun. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.